Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with a very exciting guest in Dave Johnson, who is a lecturer at Stanford University in two very interesting schools. So he, he lectures both at the law school at Stanford and also at the design school of Stanford and specializes in a topic that is near and dear to my heart, which is negotiations. So thanks for coming on the show, Dave. My pleasure. Thanks, Jan. Appreciate it. Right. So I wanted to start off with something that I thought would be kind of fun. Given your, your area of expertise in negotiations, it feels like there's uh, been a little bit of an increase in popularity in the field in the last couple of years. So I wanted to ask you about common negotiation advice that you hear that you just don't like or don't agree with. Yeah. <laughs> How much time do we have? So I'll start with a couple that, that I really believe in, in fact, are going in my next book. And uh, most people who have negotiated will have uh, heard this. One of them is the BATNA. We've all heard about BATNA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. It's sort of the first acronym they throw at you in Negotiation 101. And I used it for the longest time, but I came to decide that it became a meme before memes were a thing. But I don't like the fact that it's best alternative to a negotiated agreement. I want to change it to better alternatives in the plural. Why? Because when you say alternatives, it automatically puts in your mind that you have multiple alternatives. Because guess what? In every negotiation, we already have an alternative to doing the deal, and that is to not do the deal, which is to say, don't do a bad deal. So your first alternative is already on the table. So I want people to think about multiple alternatives. Secondly, when they're in a negotiation, and I can tell you this from lived experience for 30 years, you're negotiating either to polish off a litigation or try and do a deal, an M&A deal or something, you almost always have alternatives. And you may not know in the middle of negotiation with party one whether or not your alternative two, three, or four is the best one. You almost always will never think it's the best one because otherwise you'd be talking to the person who has the best alternative. There are always alternate, plural alternatives. One might be better than the one, the negotiation you're in. So the idea of having multiple alternatives and therefore changing the word from best to better, to me, this kind of comes from my design side, applies a designer's mindset to expanding the space that we're thinking about, the what we call the problem domain, so that we actually open our mind to seeing other options. And to me, BATNA, best alternative, is, uh, is stale bread and we just need to throw it out of the negotiation canon and just call it better alternatives to a negotiated agreement. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, great way to start us off too. So a little bit of a segue into the design thinking sort of things. And I wasn't necessarily sure what the interaction was going to be on that, but ultimately... Maybe the uh, the intersection is between using design to get to a goal rather than the specific negotiation and taking a bit of a broader frame, which it kind of seems like is is sort of the the angle here. 
is uh, can be super important because like I think one of the things this is super funny. The last course that I took on negotiation was back when I was in college, probably uh, dating myself, but around 2010 or so. And it was a he was a, he was a great <laughs> professor. <laughs> he was uh, uh, I think he was a Harvard uh, Harvard Law School grad, great guy. But um, there was there's I think a lot of the stuff was this kind of getting to yes school of thought where there was like some creative decision-making, which in some contexts is the wrong thing to do, right? Because if you're getting creative to make a deal that shouldn't happen, happen. It's kind of like that old uh, Peter Drucker saying, right? There's nothing worse than something done efficiently which shouldn't have been done at all. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, well, let's start there. There's several ways that that I I can describe design thinking impacting negotiation, and I'll come back to that in a second. But you touched on one of them, which is seeing the larger scope. For anybody who's interested in a couple of reading suggestions, one that's on the internet, very easy to find, is a short article by Jim Sabinius at Harvard called Waging a Negotiation Campaign. And it's one of the best things that I think Sabinius has has written, and he's written a bunch of books, but I actually like this five-page article a whole lot better because it really captures the idea that when you want to you, you're, you're sitting at your desk thinking about how am I going to make X happen? He suggests waging a campaign, which means figuring out how many different people might have some touch on the people, the person or the people who are making the decision that you want them to make. And then so the first step is to reach out to these multiple people, and get them on board, and then and only then figure out how to approach the person who's the decision maker. And that only comes about by thinking with a designer's mindset, which is you know, the, the, the full space of potential solutions that you, wouldn't necessarily, that, that you wouldn't necessarily come up with if you just sat down with a chalkboard or a piece of paper. How am I going to make X happen? So, yeah, that's one way to go about it. Let me just spool back to the beginning of how all of this started with me and the, the D school. We call it, it's the institution. The Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford is the technical name. Hasso Plattner is the founder of SAP, competitor of Oracle, and is graciously, you know, our founder sponsor. I met one of the faculty at the D School, and she comes uh, has a PhD in, of all things, biology before she became interested in design thinking. We just chatted, and I said, "What happens if we smash design thinking into negotiation like a?" a particle accelerator. I want to do that and see what happens. And she liked that. And so we did some experiments and blah, blah, blah. We came up with a, ultimately with a course that we've taught for five years. So there were no preconceived notions when we came to this. It's an experiment in the truest sense of the word, and it evolved. And one of the other applications that I want to emphasize here that design thinking brings to negotiation is this idea of learning to navigate ambiguity. At the D School, they have this concept of what we call the eight essential or core design abilities. There's mm-hmm. synthesizing information, there's communicating deliberately, a couple of my favorites for negotiation. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the, what the sort of the capstone or the top note is another design ability called navigating ambiguity. And we've got a lot of ways that we teach uh, exercises that we put students through. And it's not just in my class. Almost every design thinking class at the school teaches navigating, navigating ambiguity in some fashion because it's what you need to be able to do 
when you're trying to design, you know, a better, literally, mouse for a computer or a better product or a better service. And we talk about designing a better process. When we talk about design with respect to negotiation, primarily we're teaching negotiators how to man to strategically and tactically build and control the process of the negotiation. Mm-hmm. Because if you control the frame, if you control the process, you avoid path dependence or you use path dependence to your advantage. Controlling the process moves the negotiation in the direction you want. And if you're winning the battle of taking the negotiation from A instead of to B to C, you take it from A to M back to F and over to Z, that is to your advantage, then, then you're, you're, you're going to prevail uh, in that negotiation better than if you'd have just gone in a linear fashion. So we're about teaching students who have already taken, as a prerequisite, to have taken a basic class in negotiation already so that we don't train them in the basics of negotiation. We teach them about designing the process in a way that is in their uh, advantage. You know, and I'll stop right after this comment. A lot of people criticize the D school and design thinking as being soft, squishy, fuzzy, not, you know, not serious. And, you know, I call BS because it's anything but it may, may it may look like that from afar, but that's not really the case. I teach negotiation from a very strict, self-interested point of view. If you're negotiating in any way other than self-interest for yourself or the client that you represent, then you're already losing. Yeah. <laughs> And so it has to be from self-interest. And what we do is we use design as a way to improve the outcome for you or your client. Now, it may be the case if it's a collaborative negotiation that is trying to create more value and make a better deal, uh, the so-called integrative negotiations, then both sides may benefit from doing the deal. And that's fine. You know, that's the classic acquisition uh, uh, scenario in law practice. So... There's nothing wrong with creating value and having the quote unquote win-win, but it's still going to be driven out of self-interest because when you do a collaborative negotiation aiming for a win-win, you create value that's good, but you still have to claim that value and distribute that value that's been created. So it's an integrative and then distributive negotiation. And we teach both pieces from a design perspective. And so the more you can create, the more you can claim and the better off you're going to do, but it's strictly self-interested. I want to, you know, lay to rest the idea that this is touchy-feely, let's be fair, and we'll meet halfway and we'll be done. That is not what we're doing. Yeah, 100%. And like, I got to comment on this too, because it's it's kind of interesting. Like, I feel like there's a lot of, and, you know, especially with uh, people who are fresh out of law school or, you know, generally people, I'm sure you're seeing the people who are making their way to Stanford Law are, are not slouches academically. And they've been used to having a very, linear, you know, percentage defined like existence. And the thing is that like, you know, when we're talking about a situation that is, uh, is ambiguous by the, like, you know, the human interactions, there's a lot of factors that are going into it. It's yeah. not like um, calculating where a cannonball is going to land if we're firing it off a cliff that's at 50 feet. But yeah. just because there aren't hard and fast rules, and it's a process that doesn't make it um, you know, <laughs> kind of a touchy feeling, which I kind of resent when I get that that feeling from other people, you know, but at the same time, too, I mean, like when we're talking about the world that we're living in, and we're moving towards a lot of these things, you know, if it is something that's dealing with calculating the cannonball, so to speak, like it's the kind of stuff you can have an AI do, right? So it's like, yeah. 
when you get to the point with these human things, which I think, yeah, like if people do believe that's touchy feely, at the end of the day, that's where a tremendous amount of value is being created in this economy. So like, I absolutely think it's, it's one of the most important things, right? Yeah. yeah. Created or lost, depending on whether or not people do it well. Yeah. And um, so to kind of go into this, so it's, it's a really interesting question. So, so navigating ambiguity, if we're not looking for certainty in terms of uh, exact step-by-step outcomes, how do you guys consider, you know, what are you guys aspiring to as far as what you're arming somebody with to be, become a master of, of what you guys are teaching? Ooh, um, at the very top level mindset, sort of fracturing the, uh, what you, we referred to is sort of the uh, hard science-based, linear, mathematically, computer science, uh, physics-oriented mindset. And a lot of students come in, and even business school students that we teach sometimes have a pretty, uh, what I would call rigid, in a non-pejorative way, mindset. In other words, this is how they're trained because the business or the uh, discipline that they're in uses these tools, and those tools work really well sort of like crisp set theory works really well. Zeros and ones work really well in certain substrates. But like you say, if you're not in a computer system where zero and one is king uh, and you're in a human system and people don't deal in zeros and ones, and I'm not going to let the cryptocurrency people you know, elbow their way in this conversation, in human systems like you're talking about, and you're trying to, for example, uh, persuade a jury or you're just designing the case that you're going to present over two weeks to set up your final argument to a jury in order to prevail, or you're in-house and you are trying to, you're sitting with, you've been called in to sit with the head of HR and one or two employees who are having a serious issue. And it's, you know one, one result could be one or both of them get fired, one or both of them stay, Somebody files a lawsuit and they stay, or you find a way through this ambiguous miasma of bad emotion, you find a way where everybody can shake hands and go back to work, perhaps further away physically from one (laughs) another than before, and you've avoided all of that excess trauma. It stems, in my view, from providing people with a real understanding of the designer's mindset, the way architects and artists and product designers and some engineers see the world, see problems, are trained to solve problems in, and there is a method, there is a real design thinking method. And by giving people from other disciplines, including law, which may be the most linear of them all, Uh, the most rule oriented, the most, you know, uh, black line kind of oriented uh, training in practice learned that that's not reality. But in law school, they're sort of trained that 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 that's reality. Breaking those, uh, I like to call it dissolving monoliths rather than fracturing stone. It's more like dissolving some of these obstacles and letting the student reform the way they see a problem with larger scope, with more courage, with more competence. And navigating ambiguity is about the process of moving through the problem process, the problem solution process, and not being dissuaded, put off, or frustrated when they reach a spot of ambiguity or uncertainty or even uh, you know, really a hard 
wicked problem within the problem, that they continue to persevere, they continue to try workarounds, they do different things to uh, keep moving forward. We have the, 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 the three E's for uh, navigating ambiguity, engage, uh, evade, embrace. And so sometimes you, you, there's a real tendency in many sciences for uh, even hardcore scientists to just try and avoid uncertainty because mm-hmm. it's so difficult to deal with. And sometimes you have to move around it, but ultimately you have to embrace the uncertainty. And in negotiation, we really lean over to try and get them to embrace the fact and have comfort in an uncertain, ambiguous space and have tools to work through it to get to a place that's a little bit more solid and uh, more likely to generate progress. Yeah. And I have to say, expectations have to be such a huge part of that, too, because if you're going from that linear place to the point where you're going to be living in the ambiguity, if you're in the, the if you're in the if you're in the mists and you're expecting there to be an answer, you're going to be really uncomfortable. If you're in the mists and you know it's going to be mists all the way, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable, right? So, um, yeah, you know, let me just drop in here because I actually wrote a piece last week, uh, a proposal uh, for a piece actually, and I used this metaphor. And it's the first time I thought of it, and I used it, but the metaphor was learning to sail on the open ocean at night. And, you know, people who are, even people who are sailors don't really like sailing the open ocean at night. You can think of all of the things that are sort of frightening and uncertain about that. The water's black. You can't see very far in front of you. There are perhaps sunken containers just floating on the surface. A whale could come by and knock your boat over. Uh, sharks are attracted to the, the unusual wake. There's all kinds of scary things out there that are unlikely to happen, but they still occupy your mind when you're sitting at the 3 a.m. watch at the at the helm, sailing the boat, trying. But on the flip side, it's also true that the weather tends to the seas tend to flatten down. You can make more boat speed at night with the with the same wind. You can see the shape of the sails, so you know if you're getting maximum power out of your sails. And you might even be able to fool around with practicing your celestial navigation on a clear night. So the same scenario, we can either think about it as, ooh, scary, or opportunity. And what we do in design thinking and training the designer's mindset is to always make sure you're looking for the things that are positive opportunities in that ambiguous space, even while acknowledging the things that are slowing you down or an obstacle or the things that are actually creating the ambiguity itself. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you're kind of getting me to think about process too, because it's one of these situations where like, if you know what you can do and what the options are and having a good, like you don't necessarily need the certainty in that space. Okay. I want to zoom out a little bit. So when we're talking about design thinking, going into a negotiation, what are sort of the key factors to, you know, if, if, uh, if I'm not extending a metaphor too much to like, what, what do you consider the, the most important factors if you're trying to drop, let's call it the blueprint for the uh, negotiation that somebody yeah. has coming up? That's interesting. One of the central tools that we created is called an empathy map. And that emanates from one of the core principles for the designer mindset, 
for the problem solver is learning to improve. We all have, a, you know, a natural baseline empathy skill. And we all, we're, what we're doing is trying to put the students through exercises, trying to get them to improve their, their personal, you know, empathic toolkit. So I find that empathy is, is very effective in negotiation. So we came up with what we call an empathy map. And I won't go into the details, but basically we present the student with a, you know, in negotiation class, you use simulations. You, you students get roles and they go and negotiate off those role sheets. They have limited information. Each of the, five, say, five students has limited set of information and they go and they try and find out what the other people have by way of information and they try and reach a deal. So we do a simulation like that and we have them do, before they start the negotiation, we do an empathy map to try and tease out the facts about their counterparty that are in their information sheet and then make reasonable inferences from those facts about what that person's motive, primary motivations might be. It's literally a three concentric circle bullseye. So the facts are on the outside rim and on the inside rim is what we think that they might be uh, thinking about. And then in the center is uh, what we posit as one or two alternative motivations. In my view, the key to successful negotiation and getting the upper hand in negotiation is figuring out what's really motivating the other side. Now, that motivation piece I used to think was obvious when I was practicing in a law firm, I would think, well, you know, this lawyer across the table trying to get the best deal for his client, that's his motivation. Well, you know what? That may be part of it, but he may also be angling for a job with that client. He may also be, he or she may be on the precipice of being voted for partner, or they may be planning on leaving the firm in, in three months and they may not really care about this deal. Those personal factors may also be motivations in whether they want to do the deal fast, do the deal quickly, do the deal aggressively, do it calmly, just get it done. These things that motivate have an effect on where they're going to draw a bottom line and where the deal can ultimately go. So trying to, and that's a simplistic, honestly, a simplistic response, but the idea is there are motivations behind the apparent motivations and it's the real personal or professional motivations of the other side that you want to try and suss out. And the way we do that is having the students do this process of really honing in, trying to apply their empathy to the information they have about the other side in order to arrive at a default assumption about the uh, motivation. That, mo that default assumption may not be correct. Mm -hmm. We tell them, you may not be accurate in that default assumption, but the process of trying to figure out what the motivation is moves you several steps forward so that when you get into the negotiation, you're going to quickly find out whether your assessment of their motivation is accurate or not. And you may shift to your alternative theory, or you may have to shift altogether. But you are already three steps into uh, your other side's psyche about what brings them to the table and how they're going to handle themselves and thus the negotiation. Yeah. What well, can I call two things? It was... Um... <laughs> I think it's Sun Tzu Art of War, you know, know yourself and know your opponent. You need not fear the result of a hundred battles. But also like one of the things I always say is that, you know, everyone's the hero of their own story. 
And if you're telling people something that's in their narrative, they're much more likely to, <laughs> you know, agree with yeah. you or at least want to move forward. One of the questions I had though, so we have the process that you were going through of trying to infer what somebody's motivations are. How do you see that interacting with um, candid, like, you know, the, the amount of candor that you can expect from uh, your, your person who you're negotiating with, or like, you know, how would you, uh, or like versus directly asking, how do you kind of see that, that interplay? Well, yeah, this is, an interest, this is an interesting area for me. I've thought a lot about this. And here's where I land. Negotiators opposite the table. This is basic negotiation. I'll start with this. They basically divide their, their information set into three parts. The parts of it, the information they want to give me because they know it helps, they believe it helps their case. The information they want to get from me that they think they can extract from me because they need that information to better analyze their case or to improve their case. Mm -hmm. uh, and the information they don't want to give up, which is the stuff that either hurts their case uh, or is simply too valuable to give up. And so I come at it with the idea that whatever they're going to say to me is going to be delivered under the patina of candor. But when they voluntarily give me the information, I say, okay, you wanted me to have that information that goes in bucket one. And I'm going to use that information and I'm going to make some inferences on that information. And the good part about that information is it can contain clues about the information that right. I want to ask about. In fact, I've got a, a video in my online course <laughs> where I'm speaking in front of a stone sculpture and I'm talking about negative space in sculpture, you know, where the, where the, where there's a hole in the stone where, where the artist has taken stone out. Mm. And, and I use that analogy because a negotiator who is guarding information is basically creating negative space. They give me the information. That's the stone. The stuff they're guarding is, is the negative space of the sculpture. I, I'm most interested in that. So the way that I, I start to ask questions to try and circumscribe or better define where up the edges of where they'll give me information. Right. And the more I can circumscribe the edges of, what, of the information they'll give me, the better, you know, definition by absence I get of what they're hiding. And that tells me something in its own right, even if I don't ask direct questions. But I'll usually do that before I then ask the direct questions, because at that point, I don't think they're going to give me the answer because they're obviously guarding this information. But the way that they answer tells me something about the type of information it is. Is it really dangerous information that will kill the deal if I find out? Or is it information that will uh, increase the value uh, of, my, of, the, of the asset or decrease the value of the asset, which is a little bit different? But Scoping, using questions to scope the space is itself uh, the gaining of information. Uh, you could call it meta information if you want. But uh, so to go back, you know, un, you know spool back to the, your original question, I don't spend a whole lot of energy worrying about candor in the sense that is this person really authentically telling me real information? Or are they just really good actors and they appear to be give, telling me good information? Or are they sort of a beginning negotiator and it's obvious that they are either dissembling or if not outright lying, which does not usually happen. It's <laughs> yeah. too obvious. So 
you know, beyond that, I don't spend too much time trying to discern that because I've learned that that's that can that can mislead me. So I, I'm trying to avoid being misled there. What I'm more interested in is in the actual information that's coming over the rail and working with that and just sort of leave the person's uh, uh, reliability uh, as a uh, as constant and unknown constant until later on in the negotiation when I've gotten I had you know hours or days with them and then intuitively maybe I can get a better feel for how honest or not they might be right and to kind of invert the question a little bit let's say that you're you have to recommend some things for somebody who's up against a pretty skilled negotiation how do you recommend people deal with those sort of questions in terms of how they are releasing information in a way to keep their position as strong as it can be yeah uh rule one for in my view for somebody who's negotiating with somebody they know to be better you know more experienced i should say and lord knows i still go up against people who are more experienced than me rule one is Talk less than you feel like you want to talk. Listen more. Talk less, listen more. The other side, all experienced negotiators live and die by that rule. So there may be periods of silence where the other person is waiting for you to speak and you're going to sit and wait for them to speak. Mm. Talk less and listen more because you gain leverage uh, and you don't risk losing leverage when you're listening and you risk losing leverage when you're speaking. Now, sometimes when you're speaking, if you're making a, a, a really good structural argument or you're presenting new information that can help you, then, yeah, speaking at that point, that's a useful time to speak. But uh, most of the speaking in, that, that I do is asking questions and waiting for the answers. And then the other thing with, a, with an experienced negotiator is be patient. Sometimes there's a deadline on uh, negotiations and you have to do a deal by X time or day, but usually there isn't. Or if there is a deadline, it's an artificial deadline, it can, get, it can get pushed. Experienced negotiators know how to use a deadline, real or artificial, use a deadline to force their counterparty into a position where they feel like they have to start making concessions more quickly than they should. Rule number three is reciprocity. I'll stop with rule number three, reciprocity most powerful human uh, sort of uh, norm there is. You're probably, I laughed earlier in the podcast when you said you're going to date yourself and then you said something like 1990 and I'm laughing. I'm thinking, oh man, I'm going to date myself in 1958. So, you know, um, the, you won't, so you won't remember this, but some of the older audience will. There was a time when you would go to the airport, almost any airport in the, in the U.S., and the Krishnas would hand out flowers to passengers in the airport. And then they would ask for donations. And they were using a trick as old as time, which was, it's a little plastic flower. It's not even a real flower. And this is not to demean the Krishnas or anybody else who uses this tactic, even in today's world, people who are asking for money for a charity, they, they do this as well. But the one that sticks in our minds is they would hand you the plastic flower and then they'd tell you about their religion and then they would ask you for a small donation. And if you took the plastic flower 
you are 50% more likely to give them a small donation than if you refuse to take the flower. And the other thing is, if you didn't give them a negotiation and you gave, uh, sorry, give them a donation and you gave them the flower back, the scholars that did these studies found uh, that they would reuse that flower. If you took the flower with you and walked down the airport uh, hallway and then threw the flower in the trash, they would go pull the flower out of the trash and, re <laughs> and, and reuse it. So they, but what they were leveraging is this idea that if I give you something, you have an obligation to give me something in return. And it is really powerful, psychologically, really powerful stuff among humans in every aspect of life. And we can all think of dozens of examples where this happens. And so in negotiation, make sure you use reciprocity so that if you're going to give a piece of information or larger, you're going to make a concession on price, you darn well better get something back of equal or better value than what you gave. The experienced negotiator will give you a small piece of information, a useless piece of information, position it as if it's a big concession to give you that information, and induce the less experienced negotiator to give a more valuable piece of information. And there's a point at which, yeah, it's a meta negotiation. We're negotiating with information, negotiating about information until both sides have a stronger set of information from which to decide I'm in a better position. I can dig in my heels at a higher price or I'm in a worse position. I'm going to have to concede more than I thought I would when I came in. Now, I found it really interesting when you categorized the types of information that your counterpart would have. Do you ever recommend sort of like um, an inventory of concessions that somebody might be open to make heading into a, a negotiation? Say more about that. When you say, uh, do, am I doing my own inventory? Yeah, like heading into negotiations, like, you know, like what you're willing to, to part with or that sort of thing or information oh, yeah. and classify it, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Even in the basic negotiation class, one of the first things we do are prep memos that include the question of what's your aspirational target? So let's say you're doing a buy, sell for a used car. I mean, it's the basic example. And the funny thing is with used cars these days, you can do the research and nail the price down to probably with you know, plus or minus $10 anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's almost not a negotiation anymore, which is why you see these online companies doing, you know, we'll just buy your car. And so, yeah, we have students go through the process of setting what's their absolute aspirational for what they'd like to get, what they think they'll get is a good result, what they'd be happy with, and what their absolute bottom line walk away number is. And we train them to know your bottom line. And if you reach that bottom line, you will walk away. Although with the caveat that it can be adjustable in the negotiation if you learn information that's relevant to adjusting your bottom line, uh, likewise adjusting your top line. But to go in looking at your, keeping your eyes, your, your figurative eyes on the top line, because there's also studies that show if you think about your bottom line, when you're negotiating, you're going to end up there. If you're thinking about your top line, you're more likely to end up there or closer to there and up further away from your bottom line. It's just kind of it's that simple that you, it's, it's like motorcycle riding 101 or skiing or, or other physical endeavors. You go where you look. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you've ever taken motorcycle lessons, that's the first thing they'll tell you. 
do not look down because your bike is going to go where you look. And it's a life or death rule uh, in motorcycling. But yeah, there's absolutely that preparation. And then there's the issue of concessions. And there's also this notion of anchoring, right? Mm -hmm. The first number is an anchor and the other party's first number is a quote unquote counter anchor, but you have two anchors and invariably in a negotiation, the deal, if it's going to happen, is going to happen between those two anchors. So there's an enormous amount of debate, discussion, and you know, writing about should you anchor you know, with an extreme number or a reasonable number? If you choose one or the other, you know, how do you, uh, what do you do about that? What, why do you make that choice? How do you make that choice? And now that I've brought it up, let me just put a bow on this to, to, to answer the question that might, might be in your audience's mind is, if you choose to anchor fairly extreme, whether you're the buyer or seller, my advice is make sure you're doing it for a strategic reason. But if you're anchoring extreme, immediately before or immediately after you utter the number, wrap words around it that include the idea that you have some room to move. So, for example, I'd say, Jan, you know, I'm going to give you a number. It's what I'm asking for this car. I can spend time talking about why. I'm going to give you the number and you might have a little sticker shock and we can talk about the value of the car, et cetera, et cetera. But I want you to know that, you know, if you're really interested, I probably have some room to move, a little bit of room to move off of this number. The idea is to put in your mind enough flexibility that you don't have sticker shock and walk away because my number is extreme. And the idea of what I'm trying to do is anchor high to make you counter a little bit higher than you otherwise would have when you came into the negotiation. So I've moved the frame in my direction. And, and so just to, pop, to finish it off, the other strategy is for my number to be much more reasonable, closer to my bottom line, probably closer to the value of the asset. But when I do that number for strategic reasons, and there are reasons to do them both ways, I'm going to wrap words around that offer that's going to say, Jan, I'm going to give you a no, we Let's not bicker back and forth. We don't need to do this back and forth thing. I'm going to give you a really reasonable number, probably one that my partners would be crazy to even hear me say, but I'm going to give you this reasonable number, but I'm going to tell you, I don't have a whole lot of room. to move. I might be able to make one small concession just to satisfy your client so he feels like he got a good deal, but he's going to get a good deal off of this number anyway. So when I tell you it's 42500 Really, I'm, I, that's going to be my really firm number. And that is intended, again, to change this, your psychology about hearing the number. So it, as important as the number and the position of the number on the, on the continuum is what I put in your mind about my movement or lack of movement on the number. Gotcha. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> uh, you got me thinking. It's kind of like um, I saw you were a tennis player on your bio, but like it's yeah. kind of like the spin you put on the ball, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. and yeah. but you're you're hedging your bets in, in that way too, because it's like the anchor is going to work regardless. The only way the anchor doesn't work is if they say that's outrageous. I'm out of here. But you're you're kind of making sure that it doesn't happen with the context that you're providing around it. So that's a really good perspective on it. Okay, I wanted to, and we're getting towards the end of my time, and I've been. I'm really enjoying this conversation, Dave, but I wanted to uh, wrap up with some kind of quick tactical stuff for anyone who's really enjoying this. 
you've had the benefit of dealing with some incredibly smart people over your career and seeing a lot of people grow as negotiators. What do you think for somebody who is, uh, you know, entry level at this kind of stuff, what are the most common, you know, low hanging fruit corrections that you can make with somebody who's coming into your classroom? That's a good question. So the first one is going to sound, I think, but the word I'm going to use is confidence. It's a really scary thing to be new at negotiation, particularly professionally, to be new at negotiation and have to go do it with somebody who you know is experienced. And in the law practice, if you're coming out of law school or you're pretty early in your career, statistically, the likelihood is you're going to be negotiating with somebody who's senior to you, perhaps far senior to you, or perhaps even a judge, and in a different kind of way. And so what I'm trying to do with beginning negotiation students is give them confidence. And the way that you get confidence is by practicing in a controlled way. So if you're a young lawyer and or you're just starting out with negotiation, I would suggest two or three things sort of in parallel if you really want to accelerate your negotiation skill. Read one or two of the really good books on beginning negotiation. The one I'll, I'll tell you is by Richard Schell. It's the one I teach. It is probably the best basic negotiation book. You can find it anywhere. Just look for Richard Schell. Um, bargaining for advantage. That'll give you all of the basics. That gives you that. That's like the joy of cooking for negotiation. <laughs> Everything's in there. And then number two, if you can try some online classes. Uh, mine, I, I do not have out in the public right now, but there's plenty of online classes that will give you the opportunity or real face-to-face uh, uh, -face classes, which is which are actually better because you can practice simulations with other people. And I know law, uh, legal training uh, can, can do this. Uh, and then in the live fire, in the professional negotiations that you're doing, uh, don't overreach. Be very, very well prepared. The way you lose a negotiation is not being well prepared. The odds of winning are much higher if you are very well prepared particularly if you're more prepared than your counterparty. And prepared means including not just knowing all the information, but also being prepared process-wise, prepared to take your time, uh, prepared to listen more than speak, uh, prepared to be patient and uh, move slowly in making concessions and make time your friend. Uh, because the slower you move, oftentimes you'll get a counterparty who wants to just do the deal and they'll start making concessions. But the, the upshot here is you gain confidence with small incremental wins. You lose confidence if you try for too much, too big a deal, uh, too complicated a negotiation, and you run into trouble. You will actually fall back below your confidence level before you went into that one. So try and pick your negotiations that are manageable, bite-sized negotiations that you can do several of them. So for young litigators, motions to compel and discovery is where uh, lawyers oftentimes start. Negotiating motions to compel discovery is a really good place to get 10 or 20 negotiations under your belt without a whole lot of risk and build your confidence because ultimately in negotiation, everything else flows 
and confident in your own Okay, that's awesome. And super good recommendations as well. I mean, I think there's like a lot of domains where this kind of carries over. And it's it's interesting. Um, I didn't really go into this, but probably one of the things I, I kind of use as a model for a lot of other stuff in life is uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which I've been a practitioner of for some time. But same kind of situation. It's ambiguous, but there's heuristics, there's process. Yeah. And you can't go too fast, too, <laughs> too far too fast, because otherwise yeah. you're going to lose confidence and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, really good advice in general, Dave. And, and um, I got to say, thanks again for, for taking the time. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. I wish that I'd had this earlier in the day because I might have had a little negotiation earlier that I could have taken some of these tips from. So, <laughs> But uh, yeah, thanks again so much, Dave. And for My everybody pleasure. else, we will be back with you guys Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.